0: Welcome back to the Shema Podcast and Part 2 of A History of Rectification with Rabbi Abrams.
1: Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights, intertwined through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars, demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through TORCH, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, Go to torchweb.org now to the show now we know already they even ask we know already that the Jews are going to have are going to end up leaving Egypt so why do we celebrate the exodus from Egypt as being a, an event on its own and not something that had already been preordained many years beforehand at the Covenant of the Parts? as we said God promised Abram I'm going to take your children out with great wealth why are we celebrating the actual execution of the promise? rather than the promise itself. One of the answers that they give is that God didn't necessarily have to take us out the way he did take us out. He could have simply taken our physical bodies out of the land of Egypt, our physical bodies out of the bondage, and we would have been just free men. Perhaps that's a concept that a vast majority of the world and parts of the Jewish world are more comfortable with, the idea of freedom from slavery. But that's not how God took us out. He took us out in such a way that we literally became his nation and nobody else. Like you said, this was in your introduction, this is the separation of the Jewish people from the other nations to be God and gods alone. This is God initiating the first step of marriage with the Jewish people. It did not have to be that way. From his promise to Avram, it did not necessarily have to follow through that way. So that's how the answer why the Exodus itself is so significant. It's God going above and beyond. In fact, we list all the ways God went above and beyond in Dayenu each one of those on their own would have been significant enough for us to praise and thank God in the ways that we praise and thank in in the Seder, and really throughout the year. And we mentioned Exodus every single day, twice. It's the fact that he did it over and over, kindnesses upon kindnesses. And he took us above and beyond what he had promised Avraham, that that it truly takes us beyond just a simple need to, to show gratitude and to thank God, but to devote our entire selves to him. Now, under the most extreme conditions of Egypt, the Jewish people are exposed to, as I said, they are literally, according to the descriptions that I've seen, the most debased society in human history. Forget the people before the flood. This is the worst place you could imagine trying to be a Jew in. For 210 years, they remain in the land of Egypt. And we know from the way they left that they could not have remained another second. Now, it had been 400 years that Hashem had set aside that he had scheduled, that God had scheduled for the Jewish people to be in a land not their own, to be in exile. But they only were able to last 210 years. So we'll have to see what happened to the rest, to the remainder of those 400 years. But in the meantime, during these 210 years, this is how the purification, this is how the refinement was affected. They were exposed to the most debased society in history, and yet they remained completely separated from them. How so? So the Medrash, for example, lists a few things, a few features that they, few qualities that they maintained. For one, they did not change their clothes. For another, they did not change their names. And in a third way, they never once, no exaggeration, never once sinned with an Egyptian. They never once committed adultery with an Egyptian or in any way entered into an intimate relationship. There is one exception, a famous exception, but even that was rape. And that was Dasan. Dasan who famously with his brother tattled on Moshe to Paro which led to Moshe's hasty escape from Egypt. The events that have precipitated those seri- the, the whole series of events, which led to Moshe leaving Egypt, was that Dawson caught an Egyptian overseer with his wife. Honestly, ultimately, it was rape. So that one exception where there was an interaction between an Egyptian and a Jew, that even that was coerced,
0: and it wasn't the Jew's fault. So the, in the area of sexual purity and holiness, right. starting with, Joseph and his endeavors step ahead. Exactly.
1: No, you're exactly right.
0: Okay, so there's a theme there. So, but they they kept that
1: right the entire time. Exactly. And in fact, that that's the idea of Joseph coming down to Egypt beforehand was to pave the way for the Jews' great courage and their great strength, moral strength in remaining pure in this area. It all began with with Joseph coming down to Egypt earlier and staying strong in that area as well. That's why that that's one of the reasons that event was so significant. And would have led to Joseph either be being lost from the, te- from the 12 tribes forever or becoming the very head, the very top, the, the king, or not the king, but the, the, the tzaddik, the most righteous of the 12 tribes.
0: Okay, gotcha. And which is the exact opposite of the era of the flood with Noah, because what everyone was doing was the main thing was the sexual depravity. Exactly.
1: Okay. And again, Egypt was, the, was almost a resumption of that state of affairs. They were the worst society in that sense. And it was specifically in self-gratification in, in the areas of sexual impropriety that they were, they were known for. In fact, there are some commentaries, and I think Medrash as well, that discuss the fact that the nations of the world, I think, I think it's described as the nations of the world, could not imagine that there was any way the Jews remained pure and did not intermarry at all with the Egyptians, and that there's no entanglement between the Egyptians and any Jewish women, throughout the entire time of the enslavement. In fact, it entirely boggles the mind. It's entirely against the course of nature for a country that's enslaving a peoples to not have any events like that. And again, there was one event, but that event was rape and it was aborted very quickly. But again, other than that, to be so pure, I think it's described as the nations of the world are so shocked and they're not even shocked. They're they so suspicious, so suspect of so the Jewish people and, and how they could ever have maintained their purity. The idea of the purification of the Jewish people is expunging them of all evil, refining them of all of the evil and all the bad within them. And it's in, in the, it's, it's in this specific area, when it comes to sexual impropriety, where they live for 210 years in the land of Egypt, and they are oppressed by them, harassed by them. They are fully subsumed in their culture. We're going to see they send in Virtually every other way you could sin in Egypt, but they remain pure in this one area. That that itself is the purification of the Jewish people. To be so pure in such extreme circumstances, in such extreme conditions, that was the purification of the Jewish people. That's where all the bad was extracted, and they they came out very pure at the other end. Now, it's it's also interesting to note the, the four-fifths that remain behind, and the al one of the Kabbalistic commentaries on the Torah explains that the bad that was extracted from the Jewish people, that was the whole purpose, again, the iron crucible of Egypt, the whole, fu- the whole purpose of Egypt, the bad that was extracted is the four-fifths. So again, I don't know how to fully develop that idea, but it sounds like the part that left, which we know is 600,000, the part that left is the part that, that came out pure at the other end, and the bad they left behind ends up being four-fifths, or four times, that number.
0: So I was going to ask you to reconcile the Jews being in the 49th level of impurity with the fact that Jews were keeping their bris law. Right. And keeping that covenant. Well, that's see. the thing. They
1: They weren't actually being circumcised at that point. They stopped being circumcised when the enslavement, when the, the actual oppression began. But they, but they were still keeping their, their sexual purity. They're keeping the sexual purity and that was sort of, I guess you can say it was sort of realized they realized its full potential when they finally got circumcised at the very end right before they left.
0: Okay, well then reconcile that level of holiness when it comes to the most challenging of all situations with being in the 49th level of impurity. So that's what I was saying. Every other sin that well no, every
1: other sin but specifically the sin of idol worship the Jews they they had descended they had fallen in that area. And that's why at the sea the prosecuting angel says to God that why should you save these people and not these people? When they both serve idols, he focuses on the one area where the Jews are culpable, where the Jews are indistinguishable from the Egyptians. And even at this point, further separation is required because the Jewish people did assume a lot of the customs, a lot of the behaviors of the Egyptians. But because in one area they remained pure, in that area they were able to be fully separated from the Egyptians. Did all the Jewish people remain pure, or was it just the one-fifth? So that's what it sounds like from the al that only one-fifth actually remained pure, and the four-fifths that did not actually became subsumed in the Egyptian society, or they perished, something along those lines, and that is the bad that was extracted out. But again, like I said, there still needs to be further refinement. This whole process is seeing the levels of refinement and, and how, it, how it proceeds, but to understand that there are still further refinements required, and that they still haven't reached the level of, Adam pre-sin. But that will come very soon. That will come very soon. So, again, it's an interesting idea to maybe develop as a side. But the sin, specifically, or the aspect of Adam's sin, the aspect of the mixture of good and evil in this one area, and in a certain area that was fixed, that was refined during their time in Egypt, was the aspect of sexual impropriety, which was a big part of Adam's original sin. It says in the verse that Chaba, Eve, when she viewed the tree, she had a lust for it. A lust, a similar term that is used to describe our desires for sexual gratification. As well as the medrash that explains the sequence of events there as the snake having a sexual entanglement with Chaba and leaving a little bit of himself with her. So there, is, there, there was a big feature of the sin that had involved sexual impropriety, and that was refined during their time in Egypt. But the other aspect of it, the idol worship aspect, the idea of it's all about me and not about God, that aspect remained in the, um, remained in the Jewish people. And that will still take some time to fully refine. Okay. So even when they leave Egypt, they come out mixed good and bad in one area, but in another area, they're, they're separated. Another area, the exile was a success. So when they leave Egypt, they come out for, as you said, the 49th level of Tumma, the 49th level of impurity. So we're understanding now that the 49th level has to do with idol worship. Now they have 49 days before they receive the Torah. Now those 49 days start every single year, or at least while the based on Mikdash, while the temple was standing, by the bringing of the Omer sacrifice, the Omer offering, which consists of barley, food that is normally fed to animals. And it culminates the 49 days, it culminates with the holiday Shavuos, which the unique feature of Shavuos is the bringing of the Sh'te the two breads. That's the offering of Shavuos, which consists of wheat, which is human food. So now we can understand potentially what the 49 days are meant to do. Each day we are progressing. We are evolving from our base animal state, from our 49th level of impurity, from our lowest of levels, And we're evolving each day, we're progressing each day to the state of man. What's unique about the state of man? Like we said, when Adam was first created, when he's created in his primary, in his intended state, you want to look at what is the intended state of man? What is man supposed to look like? Look at Adam before the sin. Where the good and the evil are completely separate. He was only good. And he had the ability to affect a change in the bad and elevate it. That's the unique feature of man. Man has an intellect through which he can Or he could subjugate his baser instincts, his baser physical form. He could subjugate it to the service of God and elevate it. Man has the same purpose. He has the purpose. He has the function of being able to take the bad and elevate it to the level of good, which he can only do when the good is separated from the bad. So these next 49 days after the Jews leave Egypt, starting from their very sudden and hasty exodus, all the way till the receiving of the Torah to their position at the foot of Mount Sinai, it's all about becoming a man, getting to that point of Adam pre-sin, where you now have the ability to turn the bad into good.
0: Okay, because Adam was what he recognized was his neshama, his soul. The body was very secondary pre-sin, and that's this whole idea too. is We are this fusion of animal and neshama, and we're accomplishing our mission of returning to Adam by having our neshama commandeer the body.
1: Correct, exactly. And that's the unique mark of man. Animals are not capable of this, but man is. So going from the Omer offering all the way to the wheat offering, from the barley offering to the wheat offering, is meant to symbolize this, this, this progress, this progression from animal to man. We, we're, we're, when we receive the Torah, we are now capable of turning the bad into good. And that is very significant, because when we receive the Torah, we now have the key, we have the tools to turn the bad into good. That is exactly what the Torah is. It's finally, the, the Jewish people receive the guidebook of how to fulfill the purpose of the world, perfect it to turn the bad into good. And that's exactly what the Torah is. It's a guidebook of how
0: to refine the bad. Tell me if this truth what I'm about to say, but it seems like in this process of our aspect of our soul and the shama, commandeering the body, if you take it from the top down, it's easiest from the top. Like intellectually to know, good, bad, holy, impure, right? You get down the next stage, the heart, the emotions. Sometimes they don't really want to go along with it, but it's a struggle. But the most challenging struggle is to go against the sexual urge. Right. And it seems like there's like this, the further you go down in who we are, the more animal instincts there are to overcome and overpower.
1: You're exactly right. And it's interesting if you follow the whole story from Avraham all the way down to Yosef, where you have the first instance, instance of the sexual temptation, at least as it's recorded in the, in, the, in the Torah in the Jewish people. You start with Avraham, you go all the way down to Yosef. It does look like it follows that exact same process they just mentioned. It starts with intellectualization, the rationalization of Avraham, where you rationalize that God is the true God and that that is the only purpose of mankind. And then it goes all the way to when Yosef finally had to struggle in this one particular area, which, like you said, is the most difficult.
0: And it seems like it follows that exact procession from head down. It's interesting. That yeah. And you... in Abraham, his final most difficult test was to go against his innate emotional behavior. It was natural for him to be super kind. So his test was to do the exact opposite of kindness based off God's request and kill his son.
1: Exactly. It's not to say that Joseph's test is so much, you know, it's not to say that it's a much greater challenge than what Abraham, Abraham faced, but it's certainly important to note that the significance of each one of the challenges that the forefathers and our ancestors faced, because that was, it was those challenges that would refine the forefathers themselves and refine their character that was going to determine exactly what state the Jewish people would find themselves in throughout their history and with what tools they'll have at their disposal. Because with Abram conquering his urges and conquering his emotions and conquering his natural instincts, and all the way down through Yosef, we now have those tools in our arsenal to conquer our urges and our emotions and our instincts in the same areas. And like you said, it does seem to run the gamut, not necessarily to compare and pit one against the other though. Okay, but now that we've gone to Mount Sinai and we are men again, we are men. In fact, we are one man. We are all unified, united. We are all united as one at the foot of Mount Sinai. It is here that we receive the Torah and the the, the final mission that Adam was supposed to fulfill of perfecting the bad and turning it into good. Perfecting the good and bringing the bad back to the good. Which is exactly what he was supposed to do with the temptation of the tree. With the commandment not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and bad. So... If we are finally back to the point, like we said, the whole goal was to get back first to the point of Adam pre-sin, now we're finally back to that point. Jewish people are on such a level where the bad is not a part of them at all, where they are only good, and now if they can only, they can only withstand the advances, the seductions of their environment, of the Yitzahara, of the Satan from without, then they will have perfected the world. Which is external, once again. Well, like, in, or... Exactly, it's external. And in fact, when you read the whole story about how Satan came to them, how Satan came to them and tried to convince them that Moshe had actually perished in heaven, which precipitated the events of the golden calf, it says he came upon them because he did truly come from without. This wasn't an, an evil inclination from within. This was all, This was all manifest externally, and the Jewish people still fell for it. And with that sin, they reincorporated, like Adam did, they reincorporated the evil urge. They reincorporated some of the bad. The mixture became, the what had once been separated became a mixture again. What's also interesting, which is also a little bit of a side point, but it's, it's an interesting concept, is the Arab Rav, which we know they were like the principal instigators that caused the sin of the golden calf.
0: So their, their conversion is what it sort of reintroduced impurity back into the collective.
1: Exactly. When the Jewish people left Egypt, Again, they were on the 49th level of impurity, but as we saw, that was something they were able to overcome over the subsequent 49 days. By the way, just as a side note, the reason they were able to overcome those 49 levels of impurity is because those were acquired sins. Those were sins that they got while they were in Egypt. Those were the things that they learned from the Egyptians. You take them out of Egypt, or quote-unquote, you take the, Egyptian, the Egypt out of them with the exodus and the full force of that the exodus was, the full demonstration of God's Oneness in the world, then that those character traits will begin to fall by the side because they 're extrinsic character traits they're extrinsic desires and urges they are acquired from their environment for the last two hundred and ten years. but once they leave that environment and they leave it in the way they did, those extrinsic traits can be can be removed, and that 's what those forty nine days were. but they did bring the air Rav. and this is where they tripped up after all they didn 't have the idol worship urge anymore, so why did they worship idols? After, immediately after receiving the Torah? Why did they reintroduce the Yitzhahara? So it does seem like there was a calculated, or a mistake in their calculation. I think Rabbi Jacobian mentioned this on the podcast a little while ago about the Erev Rav, and that the Jews thought they had reached the point where their separation of good and bad was so complete, leaving Egypt, that this was it. This was the final exodus. They forgot there were still 190 more years they were supposed to stay there. But this was the complete and final exodus that they can now take along the Erev Rav. They can take along the good from the other nations of the world and in, incorporate them into the Jewish people. And that, that was the mistake.
0: They weren't Christian ready. Was, was, that is the intended goal, which is not the right timing. Exactly. Exactly. The,
1: the Erev Rav are supposed to be the good from the other nations. They took a lot of their treasures. They took a lot of their wealth. They emptied out Egypt, as it says, Be'inatso es mitzrayim. They took out, they emptied out the land of Egypt on their way out. They went to their neighbors, they quote-unquote borrowed their possessions. That was part of the good they took out with them, the possessions, the material. But they also were meant to take a lot of the people, a lot of the souls. Like we said, when the good got mixed with the bad by the sin, and then even separated and refined by by Avraham and the 70 nations, there was still a lot of the good left in the 70 nations. That's part of what it means to separate a mixture. Like imagine separating two doughs of different colors. It takes a while to complete, you, you're never even going to get a fully separate until you go to each little minute, like minute piece of dough, each molecule of dough, almost and you know, okay. properly separate it. Okay. It's a very difficult process. So the Jews were meant to take the Arab obviously, out of Egypt. And I think the reason, again, for why God sort of allowed this mistake to happen, like we've mentioned a few times, you know, before, was to create the possibility... Or the maxim, uh, to, to maximize the opportunity for the Jewish people to fight with their evil inclination, or to fight again with the evil urges. Give them more opportunity to earn reward in the world to come. I don't know. I'm positing a theory here. Yeah. This might be another one of those examples where events were almost orchestrated by God again. Again, there are these two tracks. So we always have to remember there's an overarching track of, how do I maximize the reward for the Jewish people in the world to come? And this might have been part of that track.
0: I don't okay. know. I'm positing a theory. Because God does not tell Moses... No, when Moses asked about converting were exactly now it, later on it's interesting because later on by the story of the spies
1: Moshe does ask God and God doesn't tell him that they can't send the spies into Israel knowing full well what's going to happen but I think at that point you can you can potentially theorize that uh, that God this is well after the sin of the golden calf and as we see the Jews had taken back within them the evil they've reincorporated there's new an, another mixture of bad and good within them Maybe at this point, there is a further concealment of God. And that's why he didn't explicitly tell Moshe not to send the spies into Israel. But over here, where he doesn't tell him not to take the Arab, Arab out, it's pretty hard to say that 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 has nothing to, that, that God isn't trying to orchestrate something here. And again, probably by the spies also, God is trying to orchestrate something. But again, tangential, that would be a longer discussion. So specifically over here, the Arab, Arab is their weak point. Specifically because when the Jews left Egypt, they weren't ready. They weren't fully perfected. And they didn't have the ability and the tools to fully perfect the Erev Rab without a lot of hard work. Again, they could have done it. After the giving of the Torah, they could have done it. They could have conquered the evil urges from without. The Erev Rab, the Satan, whatever they may have been, the instigators. They could have conquered that. But they failed and they didn't conquer it. And now good and bad are mixed again. So, but here's the thing. In Egypt, the bad had fully conquered the good. The bad had dominated the good so much that you can never distinguish the good from the bad. Like I said, um, Ramchal explains that the period of the enslavement of Egypt was a time when God was most concealed from this world. He was working behind the scenes, but he was most concealed. It doesn't mean he left. It just means he was most concealed. But during the time in Egypt, that's when the bad had dominated so much that it was virtually impossible to find the good. So that we're never going to go back to. In fact, there's an explicit commandment not to go back to the land of Egypt because we should, we're never supposed to return to that state. We're never supposed to return to the state where the bad dominates the good. But at this point, the good and the bad are combined. They're still mixed together, but it's in a, it's in a state of flux okay. where sometimes the bad is, is dominant, sometimes the good is dominant, but at no point do you lose sight of the other. At no point does good fully dominate the bad. At no point does the bad dominate the good. It's like an in-between stage. It's like a balanced... It's, it's a balanced place
0: where it's in flux. I thought the all that was good was extracted out of Egypt. I mean, the Egyptians were...
1: Yes, and that's off. another reason. Exactly, you that's know, another reason so we do not go doesn't back. doesn't want doesn't need to go back there because we exactly. were our job is. No, it's... That's another reason, right. But I'm explaining that it might also be meant to be taken metaphorically almost. Okay. You have no need to go back to that state. I've fully taken you out of that exile. In fact... We mention the exodus from Egypt. Not the exodus, not the salvation of the other exiles that came later. We mention the salvation of the exodus of Egypt twice a day. And we mention it when we make Kiddush. We mention it by Kiddush for Shabbos, we mentioned by Kiddush for Yom Tov. We mention it so many times. The question is why? I think somebody even says, I forget which commentary, says it's mentioned 50 times in the Torah, the exodus. Why is the exodus mentioned so much? Why is it an essential part of our lives? And the answer really has to do with another question which is based on what the Haggadah says, you should see yourself as if you left Egypt. No, that's a little bit later on in the Haggadah, actually. It's earlier in the Haggadah, where it says that if we had not left Egypt, right after the Manashtana, if we had not left Egypt, if God had not taken us out of Egypt, we would still be slaves to Paro. And the question everybody asks is, would we really be slaves to Paro still? Would we still be enslaved by the Egyptians? Probably not. But the answer is the same for both. This exodus is so complete. This exodus... Took us, from the, took us out of that state where bad dominates the good so thoroughly that you cannot distinguish the good, ever, really. That it's so virtually impossible to distinguish the good. The exodus took us out of that state forever. We never have to return to that state. And that's what's so significant about the exodus from Egypt. If God had not taken us out, that state of affairs might have remained. Okay, our bodies may have been taken out of Egypt. Our physical enslavement might have ended. But there would still be no way to distinguish the good from the bad. There be no way to see the good anymore. No way for the good to be separated from the bad. But now that God took us out, we have that ability today for for the good to overcome the bad. Not only for the good to be distinguished from the bad, but for the good to even overcome the bad. And why we mention Exodus every day, twice, and so often throughout the year, and it's mentioned so many times in the Torah, is because of how important that is vis-a-vis our current state of purpose, our current state of balance between the Itzahara, the Itzah Tov, the good and the bad. It is that exodus from Egypt that means we never have to be completely dominated by, the, by evil anymore. All the subsequent exiles don't look like, they never look like the Egyptian exile. Maybe for brief periods, for brief flashes, but there's nothing so dominating about evil throughout the subsequent exiles, throughout the four major exiles, up till today, that had that feature of you cannot find the good anymore. And the first
0: exile was destined.
1: Exactly. All the way from the original sin, it was destined that such a perfection, such a refinement would be required. And again, Avram could have avoided it if he had succeeded in overcoming the shortcomings, overcoming the faults that he inherited from his ancestors. He could have theoretically um, avoided it, but otherwise it was predestined. Yeah.
0: Were the subsequent three exiles, including the one we're in right now, destined? In some ways, yes.
1: Because when Abram was informed of the 400 years in, in Egypt, he was being told, this is exactly what needs to be done in order for the sin of, of Adam to be reversed. We need to go through this. You need to go through, your children need to go through, you've, you've, you've accomplished the first few things. The first few things you need to do is separate yourself from the nations, um, create a collective that is devoted to God that will, that will be the ones to earn the world to come. You've done that. You've checked all those boxes. But we still have all the mixtures of good and bad that needs to be refined. We have, the, impure, we have the, the impurities and the gold that need to be extracted. How do we do that? 400 years of exile in the land, not their own. Okay. If they had remained the full 400 years in Egypt, it would it have worked? Okay, that too. But now that it didn't, in, included in that original foretelling, in the original prescription on God's part, to Avraham by the Covenant of the Parts, included was in that was if they have to leave Egypt early, if they have, we have to cut it short, the perfection, the refinement short, then it will come about later. So even in, it's alluded to, even in the story of the, of the, of the Covenant of the Parts, there is an allusion to the subsequent four exiles as well. But Avraham had no way of knowing that. He didn't know about the subsequent four exiles. He just knew about the Egyptian exile. God saw no reason to trouble him even further with the news that they're gonna be in exiles till who knows what year, we're in 572 already, so he saw no reason to trouble him with that information. But technically it was predestined, but it wasn't predestined that had to happen. If the Jews would've succeeded with the Egyptian exile, if they managed to stay there 400 years without fully being um, subsumed by the Egyptian culture of idolatry, and they have been able to stick around 400 years, they would've fulfilled it, completed the process. But technically they had to leave early, and now, all these subsequent exiles must, they must, well, here's the other thing. They don't actually have to go through the subsequent exiles if they can f- complete the refinement process. If they can, com- they can complete the purification process on their own, if they can do it themselves, then they don't have to go through exile. There are times in our history, like the times of, of Solomon, the times of Shalom where the Jewish people were so ascendant in their good, right. they had gone to a point where they had virtually separated good and bad where the nations of the world were sending forth their delegates, their delegations to be, to be affected, to be influenced by the Jewish people. We were approaching a point in history, didn't actually manifest, it ended very abruptly. But we were pro- approaching a point in history where the, the good of the other nations could have been incorporated into the Jewish people. And the bad of the Jewish people were, was being refined by the Jewish people themselves. With their Again, they have the Torah now, they have the means to do it, they were working hard at it. There were times in our history where we became close. And we were actually affecting it.
0: Was the issue then that King Solomon made the same error that Moshe made?
1: Potentially, but if he made that mistake, it's more a reflection on the Jewish people as a whole and not just Solomon himself. There's a principle, a concept, that if the king errors, it is his fault, obviously, but it's also the fault of the people. It's because the people weren't ready. It's because the people weren't, as a collective, Which, they weren't ready.
0: Just to clarify for the listener, meaning he, King Solomon was marrying Women from other nations right. to try to bring them around, just saying Moshe was trying to convert right. them. But he
1: married, he married too many of them.
0: Uh, the Torah prescribes
1: a certain cutoff of 18, and he
0: married more than 18. Correct. Right.
1: And he ended up becoming influenced by, by his wives, similar to how the Jewish people were influenced by the Arab, Arab.
0: But it was still based off something holy of, of infusing them with the Jewish people. But exactly. Probably infused a little bit of arrogance that I can go beyond the suggestive directive of limiting it and do more.
1: So, like we, like we said before, he wasn't ready. He didn't realize that potentially, but he wasn't ready. And there was still a little bit of bad within him that hadn't been fully refined. And, when, and where did that bad come to the. Like, where did that bad have, have its effect on his judgment, on his decisions in marrying more wives than he should have? That was his mistake. And that came from the bad, the faults that he had still within him that he hadn't fully refined. And that's really the, the, the problem. That's when these times of good end abruptly. When the Jews think they've reached the level of refinement necessary to perfect the world, they go out there and actively perfect the world, and they actually have not. Okay. It's an, a misjudgment. But at the end of the day, the exiles, if we do not succeed on our own, and we hadn't, then the exiles are meant to affect a similar separation, a similar refinement of what the Egyptian exile had affected, and continue and complete that refinement. And that's what the subsequent exiles are meant to be. Meaning, if the Jewish people don't succeed when they build their temple, being the light unto the nations that they they are meant to be, following and keeping the Torah, maintaining the Torah the way they are meant to, then they will have to go into an exile... God promised them, if you do not keep the Torah, this is what's going to happen, right? Not as a punishment, not as a con- more as a consequence than a punishment. If you don't do the refi- refinement on your own, if you don't refine yourselves, then I'm going to have to put you in exile to have the refinement occur manually. And that's what the exiles become. It's us going out into the nations, just like Egypt, being exposed to all the extreme conditions of the other nations, rejecting them, as we do throughout history, shedding some of the bad that we have, and incorporating some of the good, some of the sparks of souls that are in the other nations. And eventually we're going to all be elevated into the era of Mashiach. But that's the idea of going out into the other nations. That's the idea of the exile. Now we're going out to all 70 nations. In Egypt, we could have had all 70 nations right there. Not a concept I fully understand, but in theory, Egypt could have incorporated all four of the final exiles, the subsequent exiles, and included all the good of the 70 nations. And we would have taken the good of the 70 nations with us and left the bad, our bad, with Egypt and the other four exiles all together as one. It's not a concept I fully understand, but that's what could have happened. And it didn't, and we now have to do it manually and through a longer process. One more thing to note is about souls didn't really discuss it at the beginning. But Adam himself comprised of 600,000 souls. When God created the world, he set certain limits on what, what this world would include and entail before you get to the world of reward. One of those limits is time. This world can only exist for 6,000 years. This is how Ramchal sets the entire subject. This is how he lays it out. And then it must end before the period of reward can begin. But there's another limitation. God only allowed for 600,000 souls to be included in Adam and to be included in the perfection and the ultimate sharing in the world to come. 600,000 souls. When Adam sinned, those 600,000 souls were all t- affected by his sin. They all became mixtures of good and bad. And our Rizal he uses as, a, as an analogy, similar to this exact analogy of the iron crucible, he says when you extract gold from the ground, when you extract it from the ground, there are so many impurities in them. You have to go through one refinement over another until you finally come out with pure gold at the very end. He says it's the same thing with the souls. Once souls are affected by sin, which comes from our earthly, physical base desires, this world can only exist for 6,000 years. Then our souls also need to go through the same purification that gold needs to go through refinement after refinement. And that's how he says those 600,000 souls need to go through this process throughout History and they went through the process in Egypt. That's why we left when we were exactly six hundred thousand. We left at six hundred thousand, and that's the six hundred thousand souls that need to be further corrected and further refined throughout the rest of history. That's what we've been doing. Interesting. You also says the number six hundred thousand for the souls also equates to the six hundred thousand letters in the Torah, which, as the Arizal explains, is six hundred thousand explanations of the Torah. And that's what each soul really is. Each soul really is a manifestation, a new perspective on God. A new perspective on what God is and, what he, and and how to connect to him. Each one has a new way to connect. And that's why it's the number 600,000. Maybe not exactly why it's that number or not another number, but that's why it's prescribed and limited. 600,000 ways to relate to God through the Torah. 600,000 explanations. And each soul has its own explanation.
0: Beautiful. Anything else you want to add?
1: No, so just that idea of going through from Pesach, and then the Sphirosa Omer, the counting of the Omer, and then Shavuos, and then finally Sukkos. Sukkos is when we failed, interestingly enough. Sukkos is when we failed. We didn't stay true to God. We We didn't maintain our chastity and our purity with God. But Shavuos is despite that God is still willing to marry us. He's still willing to consummate our marriage. But he consummates it with the Mishkan. The Mishkan is not a place where we simply live in the world of reward where we just enjoy what we have the mishkan is where we still have to work we still have to work on our relationship we still have to build and develop it we still have to devote ourselves to god further and further with each sacrifice bringing ourselves closer and closer to god and giving a little bit more of ourselves to god each and every day so shavuos which was mountain torah receiving of the torah which was meant to be just eternal bliss after that Even though we didn't reach the bliss, we still reached this point of consummation. God did not forsake us. He promised that he would not forsake us despite the sin. That was the whole interaction with Moses, with Moshe, after the sin, when Moshe begged for forgiveness for the Jewish people. And then in response, God gives us the Mishkan. You
0: know, there's a great parable I read in the the Book of Our Heritage. It was a parable he brings out to explain Mount Sinai. So it's a place, everyone's blind from birth, although... A doctor comes into town and says, I have a procedure for those of you who elect that will allow you, if you go through it, to see, but only for 24 hours. So a few people out of the group say, we'll do it. And they go through this procedure, they have the surgery, and then for one day, they can see. They know exactly what everything looks like, what the sky looks like, what everyone's face looks like. They now have clarity of vision. And then the doctor leaves, the next day they wake up, and they're blind like everyone else. But everyone else said, well, at least you have the vantage point of knowing what everything looks like. We've been blind. Now you can lead us going forward. And that was our Mount Sinai. It was a, a moment in time sort of hoisted on us where we could see. And then he took our that level of sight away and then said, now you know how to lead the fellow Jews and then the world at large back to full exactly. sight. Exactly. And that
1: it literally... Using that phrase, back to, that's how the Gemara explains that regardless of what would occur with the temptation, the temptation, the the advances of the Satan to um, with the sin of the golden calf, no matter what would occur, either result, either they stay, they hold firm and they reject it, or even if they fall to sin, there's still a there's still a positive outcome, either way, either they perfect the world, and they and they complete their task by finally rejecting. The the external advances of the Satan, as Adam was supposed to, or even if they fail, they'll be able to teach the world, the entire world, how even a collection, even a nation. And again, the world was not created for individuals; it's created for a nation. It's created for a collection. The Torah, the beginning of the Torah, says Berachus Baralokim. In the beginning, God created, and the rabbis say Berachus means Beshvil Rachus, because of Rachus, because of beginning, and that's referring to the Jewish people because the Jewish people are called Rachus. Because of the Jews, are called racists. The world was created for a collection. It was created for a group of people, not just one. Not just an individual. For 600,000 souls, that's what God created. So when the Jews, as a collection, can teach the world how to, how, to, how to return, how to do teshuva, then even the sparks that were scattered and mixed in with the bad, mixed in with the anti-God throughout the world, they can be collected. They can learn how to come back as well. The collectives, the nations, the peoples, the Jewish people themselves in the future, when they fail, they come know how to come back because they've done it before. Like you said, they had a glimpse of revelation. And not just a glimpse of revelation, but a glimpse of how, to, of how to do teshuva, of how to return. So they have that guidance for, we have that guidance forever.
0: Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. I appreciate you coming on. It's a great subject, especially as we approach the weeks leading up to Shavuot. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, the, again, the important theme to come out of here is separation. If God is doing it through the exiles, if God is doing it through the nations, through our environment, he's forcing it upon us, he's doing it manually, or if we can do it ourselves. It's all about separating the good from the bad, because when we have separated the good from the bad, we've identified the good, we've worked really hard on it, and we've followed the Torah to identify the good, we can use it to convert the bad. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest
0: rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.